Welcome to this presentation of First Baptist Church Loeb. We're glad to have you joining us today. Our mission at FBC Loeb is to bring glory to God by being disciple makers. For that purpose, we present the following resource that it may be a blessing. All right, grab a Bible and turn to 1 Peter chapter 1. 1 Peter chapter 1, and in case you use our Pew Bible, that will be on page 1014. Peter is continuing to encourage and instruct this group of churches who are struggling through the difficulties of life and suffering as a result of their faith in Jesus. And this morning, he is going to explain how the church fulfills God's Old Testament design for his people and how that design informs what we should do, what we are called to do as a church. So we are in 1 Peter, actually chapter 2. I forgot we got into chapter 2 last week. 1 Peter chapter 2, and we're going to pick up beginning in verse uh, 4. Peter writes, As you come to him, a living stone rejected by men, but in the sight of God chosen and precious, you yourselves, like living stones, are being built up as a spiritual house, to be a holy priesthood, to offer spiritual sacrifices acceptable to God through Jesus Christ. And so last week, Peter emphasized the importance of us loving one another as brothers and sisters in Christ. And we were reminded that our church membership should be characterized by a sacrificial commitment to the well-being of one another as the Word of God empowers and shapes our lives. And now as we pick up again here in verse 4, Peter turns to explain something of the reality about what God is doing in and through the church. He says, as you come to him, meaning Jesus, a living stone rejected by men, but in the sight of God chosen and precious, you yourselves, like living stones, are being built up as a spiritual house. And so the main point here this morning is that the church is being built up into a spiritual house or a temple. Of course, a temple is a place where God makes his presence to dwell. A temple is the place where God is rightly worshipped. And, and so Peter compares each one of us as believers to stones or, or bricks. And as we come to Jesus, he also brings us together with each other so that we become that place of God's presence and worship. We understand that the church is the temple of God under the new covenant. Now, when he refers to living stones, Peter makes it clear that he is not, God is not constructing a, a literal building, which would be inanimate. He is assembling a people who are alive. Right, so you've probably heard it said before that the church isn't the building, it's the people. Right? And that's, that's true. Of course, the building is, is still important because this is where we gather together. And apart from gathering together each week, we would not be a church. Right? But, but as, yes, as long as we are together, we can meet here, or we can meet under a tree in Africa, or we can meet secretly in someone's basement in China, or, or wherever. The church is the people. The temple of God and the new covenant is the people. And we together are being built up into that temple. 
which is another reason, as we mentioned last week, why active church membership is so important. We need each other in order to fulfill God's design. This doesn't work any other way. So the church is being built into a temple, and Peter says in the beginning of verse 1 that this happens as we come to Jesus. He says that Jesus is a living stone. We're going to see more of this in just a moment, but he means for us to understand that through his resurrection, Jesus is the living cornerstone or the foundation of God's temple. As he gives us life, new life spiritually by the regeneration of the Holy Spirit, we become living stones that come together to form a living temple. And then in the second half of verse 5, we see that while we are the temple of God, we are also called to be a priesthood, a holy priesthood. We're going to talk about this more in a few moments as well. But for now, we can say that as a priesthood, we are responsible for serving God's purposes. One of the primary tasks of a priest in the Old Testament was to offer sacrifices. And we see here that that's to be true of us as well, although the sacrifices we offer now are not the same. Peter says that we are to offer spiritual sacrifices, acceptable to God through Christ Jesus. Obviously, we no longer offer physical sacrifices uh, for our sins because Jesus has made the full and final sacrifice for our sin by his death on the cross. The only reason we are capable of pleasing God in our lives is because Jesus has made us acceptable to God through his sacrifice on our behalf. And so the sacrifices that we are called to make are spiritual in nature. But what does that mean? What is a a spiritual sacrifice? Well, as you survey the New Testament, you find a variety of references to sacrifices. Uh, Paul refers to the financial assistance that the Philippians sent to him as a fragrant offering and a sacrifice acceptable to God. Their willingness to give was a sacrifice that pleased the Lord. The author of Hebrews refers to a a sacrifice of praise, that the Lord is honored when we give him praise and thanksgiving for who he is and what he has done. He also talks about the sacrifices of doing good and sharing in one another's needs. But I think more to the point, and, and really what encompasses everything else that would fall under this category, in Romans chapter 12, Paul reminds us that our entire lives are to be offered to God as a living sacrifice. Right? As, as we strive to fight against our sinful nature and obey Jesus' commandments in all things. And along similar lines, the, the, he tells the Corinthians that, that whether we eat or drink or whatever we do, we should do everything to the glory of God. And so the idea here is that our entire lives are to be lived in order to please God in order to to honor him in response to the salvation he has provided for us. Then one final aspect in this first section is that as we come to Jesus, we are coming to a living stone rejected by men, but in the sight of God, chosen and precious. Of course, as we went through the book of Luke, we saw very clearly that Jesus was largely rejected in his life. But then as we saw a few weeks ago, he was foreknown before the foundations of the world. Jesus was God's plan from the beginning. And the fact that he was rejected by people makes no difference at all because God is at work through him and that is all that matters in the end. And while Peter's readers may also experience rejection for those around them because of their faith in Christ, 
they can have confidence that in Christ they too have been chosen and are precious to God. Now Peter's going to, to draw out some of the Old Testament basis uh, for this as we pick up again beginning in verse 6. He says, For it stands in Scripture, Behold, I am laying in Zion a stone, a cornerstone, chosen and precious, and whoever believes in him will not be put to shame. So the honor is for you who believe, but for those who do not believe, the stone that the builders rejected has become the cornerstone, and a stone of stumbling, and a rock of offense. They stumble because they disobey the word, as they were destined to do. And so as we pick up again here in verse 6, Peter says, For it stands in Scripture. And then he strings together a list of Old Testament references to establish this divisive nature of Jesus that he just brought out in verses 4 and 5. So first he quotes from Isaiah chapter 28, where the Lord declares, Behold, I am laying in Zion a stone, a cornerstone chosen and precious, and whoever believes in him will not be put to shame. And so at the time, because of Israel's unrepentant sin, the Lord had sent the people into exile. The temple had been completely destroyed. And yet, the Lord declared that he would eventually lay a new cornerstone in Jerusalem. The Lord was going to provide a new source of salvation for his people. And here, Peter identifies Jesus as that stone, that cornerstone that that, uh, the Lord had promised. And the promise of Isaiah is that whoever believes in him will never be put to shame. Now, of course, that is true in the big picture, because obviously it is very possible to experience shame for our commitment to Jesus. In fact, that's a big part of what's going on with Peter's original readers. But the Lord promises that his people will be honored for their faith throughout eternity. And and Peter applies that promise to his readers here in the first half of verse 7. On the other hand, there are those who reject Jesus. And and the reality is that the Lord has already established that in the Old Testament as well. In verse 8, Peter quotes from Psalm 118, verse 22, which says that the stone that the builders rejected has become the cornerstone. You may remember that Jesus applied this verse to himself against the Jewish leaders in the parable of the wicked tenants in Luke chapter 20. The Jewish leaders looked at Jesus and they said, no, no way is this the Messiah. And they rejected the very one that God was using to redeem his people. In fact, Jesus was the chosen one. And through his life, death, and resurrection, he has become the cornerstone. Then Peter also quotes from Isaiah chapter 8, where the Lord predicts that the stone in question will be a cause for many people to stumble and to fall. You know, even today, but but especially in the ancient world on, on dirt roads, if you're walking along and you're not paying attention, you could easily step on a rock or, or stub your toe against a rock, or it could roll out from underneath you and cause you to stumble or to fall. And that imagery is used here to describe those who do not recognize the significance of God's cornerstone. And the, uh, rather than salvation, the stone will be a source of harm for them. Peter says that they stumble because they do not obey the word. And so last week we saw that phrase, obedience to the truth. And we talked about how that was referring to our proper response to the gospel of faith in Jesus. 
And now we see the opposite end of that, those who disobey the word by rejecting Jesus. Now, I would be negligent if I didn't at least touch on the last part of verse 8, when Peter says that those who stumble because they disobey the word do so as they were destined to do. Uh, So just like we talked about a few weeks ago with the, the concept of election, when the Bible starts talking about people being destined not to believe the gospel, people start getting real fidgety in their seats. What does that mean? What are the implications of that? And perhaps I'm going to disappoint you, But I think that the best way to answer that question, or at least to begin to answer that question, is to zoom out and recognize that the Bible teaches two paradoxically connected truths, okay? Two things that work together in ways that go beyond our ability to understand. And that's, first of all, God is sovereign over all things, and everything that happens in this world happens according to his plan. Secondly, Within God's sovereignty, people freely make their decisions and actions and are morally responsible for them. So there's a lot of mystery in terms of how those two principles interact with each other, Uh, but the scriptures are clear that they are both true. And so I think about when Peter confronts the crowd on the day of Pentecost in Acts chapter 2. He tells them, men of Israel, hear these words. Jesus of Nazareth, a man attested to you by God with mighty works, and wonders and signs that God did through him in your midst, as you yourselves know, this Jesus delivered up according to the definite plan and foreknowledge of God, you crucified and killed by the hands of lawless men. So, did you choose to do this? Yes. Did God plan for you to do this? Yes. How does that work? I don't know. We see the same thing again in Acts chapter 4. As persecution breaks out against the early church, the church meets together and they pray to the Lord and they say, truly in this city, there were gathered together against your holy servant Jesus, whom you anointed, both Herod and Pontius Pilate, along with the Gentiles and the peoples of Israel, to do whatever your hand and your plan had predestined to take place. So, did all of these people choose to collude against Jesus? Yes. Did God predestine them to do that? Yes. How does that work? Above my pay grade. But it, it clearly works, and somehow. So the reality of, of God's sovereignty and predestination is clear in the Bible. Okay, you, you cannot argue against that without rejecting what the Bible consistently says from Genesis to Revelation. But the specifics of how it actually works or what I like to call a Deuteronomy 29-29 issue. So in Deuteronomy chapter 29, Moses gives the people the law a second time before they go into the promised land. And he tells them in verse 29, The secret things belong to the Lord our God, but the things that are revealed belong to us and to our children forever, that we may do all the words of this law. So there are some things that God has not explained to us as clearly or as thoroughly as we might like. Uh, There are some things that we recognize are true, even though our finite minds can't comprehend them completely. But our responsibility is to entrust those things to the Lord and put our focus on believing and doing the things that he has made clear. That's what we're responsible for. Now, obviously, there's, there's much more that could be said about this. Thousands of books across the span of church history have been written about how sovereignty and free will work together. 
Uh, but that can be a good topic for Q&A tonight if you're interested in more of that. But coming back to uh, the, the text itself, when all is said and done, the issue comes down to this. We can either build on Jesus or we can stumble and fall over him. And there is no in-between. And this is something that we need to be clear about because one of our culture's most cherished beliefs is that all religions are basically the same. That the gospel is inescapably exclusive. You are either saved through faith in Jesus or you are not saved. And in that way, Christianity is completely distinct and cannot be lumped in with any other religion or philosophy. But having dealt with the divisive nature of Jesus as the rock of salvation or judgment, depending on how people respond to him, Peter's going to turn his attention back to his readers as we pick up again, beginning in verse 9. He says, But you are a chosen race, a royal priesthood, a holy nation, a people for his own possession, that you may proclaim the excellencies of him who called you out of darkness into his marvelous light. Once you were not a people, but now you are God's people. Once you had not received mercy, but now you have received mercy. And so as we pick up again here in verse 9, Peter turns his attention back to his readers and emphasizes a strong contrast with them. And we've seen that those who reject Jesus have been rejected by God. He says, but you are a chosen race a royal priesthood, a holy nation, a people for his own possession. Again, Peter encourages these weary believers by reminding them of their privileged status as God's chosen people. If that is true, then everything else will be okay in the end. And and he continues to use the Old Testament to make his point. And the first half of verse 9 draws directly from Exodus chapter 19, Verse 6, as as the Lord establishes the covenant with Israel, he says to them, Now therefore, if you will indeed obey my voice and keep my covenant, you shall be my treasured possession among all peoples. For all the earth is mine, and you shall be to me a kingdom of priests and a holy nation. And now there's some, some overlap in the meaning of some of these terms, but we can at least touch on each one briefly. First of all, we see that the the church is a chosen race. And when we think of race, we typically think of skin color, right? I'm white, I'm black, I'm Asian, whatever the case may be. But the truth here is that in Christ, all people are being brought into, or people from all people are being brought into one common people. As the, the children's song says, red and yellow, black and white, they are precious in his sight. And by faith, We are joined together into the kingdom, into this temple, so that in Revelation, John sees people from every earthly nation, tribe, and tongue who worship the Lord as one people. We are a chosen race. Second, we are a royal priesthood. Now, we already touched on this briefly a moment ago, but the connection with Exodus 19 brings out a slightly different angle. As a kingdom of priests, Israel was supposed to draw all the nations of the earth to worship the Lord, right? As they obeyed his commandments and received his blessings, as the rest of the world saw Israel, the idea was that they would see how how good the Lord was and they would be drawn to come to know him for themselves as well. Unfortunately, it's well established, Israel failed to do that. 
But this mantle has been passed on to the church, and now we are called to go into all nations to make disciples of Jesus. We are a royal priesthood. Next, Peter refers to us as a holy nation. Not only are we a, a spiritual race, we are a political nation. And when I say political, I'm not talking to to earthly political parties like Democrat or Republican or Independent. What I mean is that that Christians belong to a kingdom, and we have a ruler who supersedes any earthly kingdom or or ruler. We have commandments that make a claim on our lives over against all of the laws of any human government. Our highest allegiance is to Jesus. We are a holy nation. We have been set apart for his purposes. And just briefly, one of the implications of this is that every local church exists as an embassy of the kingdom of God. An embassy is is a diplomatic representation of one nation in another nation. The United States has, has something like 160 embassies in other countries around the world. And an embassy speaks where they are on behalf of its home country. It also advocates for its citizens. So if you, as an American citizen, find yourself in trouble somewhere else in the world, the American embassy there will be a resource for you. Uh, and, and if you are at the embassy, the laws of the host nation do not apply. This, this tiny piece of property is considered United States territory. And as Christians, this world is not our home. And as a church, we are here, or under a tree, or in a basement, wherever that might be, we are gathered together as as representatives who operate under the laws and expectations of our true home, which is the kingdom of God, and we we represent the interests of our true king, who is Jesus. And so while Christians belong to whatever country they may live in, which for us is America, Our ultimate allegiance is to Jesus, and his word is our ultimate authority. As we saw Paul tell the Philippians a couple of years ago, our citizenship is in heaven. And so we're going to talk more about how this works out in in real life later on in the letter. But every local church is an embassy of heaven on earth. And this is especially important to remember when an earthly government embraces rebellion against our heavenly kingdom. We must obey God rather than men. And then finally, we see that we are a people for his own possession, which is to say that we belong exclusively to God. As Paul tells the Corinthians, we we don't even belong to ourselves because our lives have been purchased at a costly price, which is the blood of Christ. And in the second half of verse 9, we see that the result of our status is that we may proclaim the excellencies of him who called you out of darkness into his marvelous light. Church, if we appreciate the the depth of our salvation, if we recognize and understand what God has saved us from, if we understand the glorious privilege that God has chosen us to be his covenant people, then it should inspire a never-ending stream of praise and thanksgiving and testimony to the world around us about who God is and what he has done for us. And then as he closes the section in verse 10, Peter emphasizes the greatness of our salvation as he borrows heavily from the book of Hosea. Uh, Again, in context, because of their unrepentant idolatry, the Lord had rejected his people. And through some 
fairly graphic illustration, he declared through the prophet Hosea that Israel was no longer his people and that they would no longer receive his mercy. But as always, God also promised that eventually he would restore his people again. And what Peter reveals here is that the fulfillment of that promise, the restoration that God has brought to his people, now also includes the Gentiles. Formerly, we were outside the people of God, but now we have been brought in. Formerly, we were destined for judgment, but now we have received his mercy. And it is as his redeemed people that Peter is going to move forward to instruct us throughout the rest of the letter. And so in our passage this morning, Peter explains the theological reality of the church. We are the new temple of God built on the foundation, the cornerstone of Jesus. And as we understand the identity of the church, we also understand the purpose of the church, which is to offer spiritual sacrifices and to proclaim God's excellencies to the world around us. Right? Under the new covenant, the church embodies the fulfillment of what it means to be God's people. And beyond what we've already said, uh, because we've covered a good bit, I think that this passage applies to our lives in a couple of ways. First of all, a correct understanding of our salvation should be humbling. It should be humbling. And what I'm, what I'm getting at is I, I find a certain tendency that we have to, to look at the world around us and to see how things are going so poorly and, and to look down on all these idiots who are ruining our society and just can't seem to get it together. And I, I really wish they would just go jump off a cliff. But if what Peter says in this passage and what he's been saying throughout this letter is true, then we have to admit that as Christians, we're not who we are because we are better than anybody else or because we're somehow smarter and we figured something out that nobody else has figured out. It is only because of God's mercy and grace. And and now our job isn't to gripe and complain about everything that seems to be going wrong in the world. Our our job is to proclaim the excellencies of the one who has called us into the light, right? Which Which is the only hope that people who are in darkness have, is that they would be exposed to the light, right? And our complaining isn't going to accomplish anything. The world doesn't need griping. It needs the gospel. And so let's be humbled by God's grace toward us this morning. And then secondly, just as kind of a recap, in light of this passage, we recognize that our whole life should be, should be lived for God's glory. Right? When we wake up each day, every decision that we make, every action that we take, every motivation of our heart should be to faithfully represent Jesus Christ to a watching world. And of course, that's not to say that it doesn't get, get complicated at times when it comes to, to actually knowing what that may look like in a given situation. Sometimes it's, it's hard to know uh, how that should work out in specific circumstances. But, but I think that if we would just be consistent in starting with that perspective, it would take us a long way all by itself. Church, we have received a great salvation, and we have been given a great responsibility. And so this morning, let's embrace our identity and our purpose as the church. Let's pray together.